It's Unavoidable with Lynn Matthews. Today's honorable guest is shaman and actor and resilient cancer survivor, Bonifacio Goudelet. Welcome, Bonifacio. Hello, Lynn. Glad to be up with you today. It certainly is a beautiful day here in New Mexico, and I'm so happy to have you as our guest today. Wow, you have an impressive background. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you're doing now and some of the most important things that are going on in your world? Probably the most important. I'm on the eighth day of chemo. I'm doing a 14-day stretch. You'll have to excuse me. It makes me a little out of it. It makes me feel very tired. Good thing is that it beat the cancers down to zero, multiple myeloma, bone cancer. And after we're done with this round, we're going to try a new treatment that they're very hopeful they might have a cure for bone cancer. That's epic. Can you tell me what it's been like after that's been treatment and recovering? Fortunately, I've been active the whole time, little here and there. The last seven years, when I met you and Michael is when I was diagnosed and began this cancer journey. And that's when my acting career was speaking role on Logmire and I was Breaking Bad and it was really taking off. Then I was hospitalized and everything crashed and stopped. Been a witness to the whole entire journey. We tried a new treatment. I was the eighth patient in New Mexico to do this stem cell transplant using my own stem cells. And it was very successful. And here I am six years later. Well, that was in 2016, yeah, six years, and hopefully they found a cure for cancer. So meanwhile, during all this, I still did a few movies, including Cowgirls and Indians. That, unfortunately, I think I had COVID. It was right at the beginning of COVID. They said my performance was weak. I haven't seen it yet. My point is I've been fortunate to do little roles here and there through all this hospitalization, knee replacements, and both of my hips have been replaced now, so I'm doing good. The, sh- the roles I've had were all shaman roles. It just seems to work, except one, I was a gangster in a 60s crime kind of movie. I hear how resilient you are on this jet you have been on and that you're still on. What is that like now? Yes, hope is all that kept me going. And dear friends like you and Michael, inspired me to keep fighting on when a lot of people, after they do the first round of chemo, they say, forget it, just pull a plug, including my mother was 73. She did one round of chemo and she said, no, just let me die. So she denied it and she died. So I am determined to fight it and beat it. And for my children, for anybody else going through this, be an inspiration they had a billboard on the big eye in Albuquerque, the biggest billboard in town. They had big sign it said help and hope and it had my picture they did that because i was the only native american that they could find that did the stem cell transplant and survived that i could be a beacon of hope for others hopefully others saw that and were inspired to the brave journey and survive this we can do it you have certainly inspired me on many occasions what I'd like to share with you is I have been a witness to your resiliency as you've gone through this healing process. I always marvel what you're able to do while you are healing. Well, you, of course, you've been an inspiration to me also. And a few of my close friends that have helped me through this journey. And it's looking good now. I have both of my hips have been replaced now. And I'm learning to walk with all my robotic internals. And I'm mm-hmm. training hard. 
just yesterday I got booked for another movie called Maktoub. I don't think I'm saying it right, but it's from Morocco, a story, a shaman from the other side of the world. But I guess a shaman's a shaman, you know. I keep getting cast for these roles, so I roll with it. And you are my shaman. So grateful to you. As a shaman, what can you share with the public about what that is? A lot of people don't know what a shaman is. So how would you describe what being a shaman is, and how did you become one? Since I was a little boy in grade school, I knew I was something else than I was assigned to be because we were in them. Not only missionary school, but the Indian schools. I attended public schools and then the missionary schools and also the boarding schools. I got to see what was going on, but I did not identify. You know, I wore a suit and a tie. Like in the third grade, to make my mother happy, I joined the ministry school of our church. She was so proud. She bought me a three-piece suit. When I would go up on the podium and pontificate and give Bible verses, lectures, she would be so proud. I knew it wasn't me. I was something else. And all my life, people told me I was a shaman. I was like, I don't even know what a shaman is. I just feel like I've grown into this position. And in fact, throughout my youth, I denied it. I did all the wild things. I played in rock and roll bands and traveled and all of that fun stuff. But I try to deny my identity. And now I just accept it. It is what it is. I don't pursue it. I don't practice shamanistic rituals, although I do make a lot of sage for my friends to smudge their houses because I have beautiful sage here. More of a spiritual connection with the earth and with people. That's how I see it. I I don't want to be disrespectful to any particular tribe because I catch a lot of flack from that. In fact, that's what got me into the movies. Very close with the Hamas tribe, and I had a lot of workers, and they would make fun of me. They, they would say, you're not a real Indian, you're a Hollywood Indian, and that hurt. So I thought, okay, I'll show you. So the first movie I tried out for in 1998 was John Carpenter. It was called The Ghost of Mars, and Ice Cube was in it, and Natasha Hendridge. And I tried out for that, and I got a part, and it was so much fun. I thought, this is what I want to do. So that's when my movie career began, in 1998 on that movie. And Ice Cube killed me. He said, die, you mindless motherfucker. And he shot me <laughs> with two Uzis. <laughs> he was like on this space train on Mars. We forced the door open, and he was standing there with two Uzi machine guns. He told me, die, you mindless motherfucker. And that was it. <laughs> Oh, my and gosh. I scooped up all the bullet casings and put them in my pockets, and I gave them to my kids. And all the kids at Corrales Elementary had these bullet casings that Ice Cube shot. They thought it was so cool. So how did Children. you go from you, Adam Sandler? So Adam Sandler, once again, I was a shaman. I, there's a really good scene at the end of that movie with Saginaw Grant, who, bless his heart, he just died recently. But he holds my arm, and he says, white man can't dance. You know, it was a comedy. Once again, and I had a good connection with Adam Sandler. He used to call me. I don't want to tell you what he called me. He had a nickname for me. He made fun of everybody. See, now I want to know. <laughs> he called me Gene Simmons because he said I looked like Gene Simmons. So the okay. name stuck. And every time he'd come around, he wanted me to call like a crow. <laughs> he loved that. And <laughs> He even brought his children to hear me crow, but I had been standing around the campfire all day long. You know, they put these, some kind of burn sticks in the campfire to make them smoky, mm -hmm. and oh, smoke was making me choke, and I couldn't cough. That in my war cry. He wanted mm -hmm. his children to hear the war cry. I would do it for you, but it might break your ears. Oh, please. Go right ahead. No way. Are you kidding? Yeah. yeah absolutely. Okay, I'm going to back up from the phone then. Yeah, I'm going to back cry. up. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Work right. <laughs> oh, I'm scared. Wow. 
I, both of those. I was standing next to those smudge sticks or those fire sticks, and um, I my voice was all choked up. And so his children were disappointed. They didn't get to hear it. So hopefully we can do it again. I want to reach out to Adam Sandler. Back to that. I feel that Adam Sandler was not treated fairly by the film community or the Native community when he did his last movie here, Ridiculous Six. How so? I would like to reach out to him and apologize. He treated us very fairly. He treated us like kings, actually. He fed us so much in the tents, you know, between takes that I could hardly move. Lobster and fancy hors d'oeuvres and shrimp. It was just crazy. And we had a big tent with air conditioning. And, you know, this is out in the middle of nowhere in the hot summer. However, he was attacked because of his sophomoric humor. But that's Adam Sandler. These people came on the movie knowing this was Adam Sandler. He's a comedian. And then they got all upset about his joke. So I got a spot on Channel 7 News. They quoted me. I said, relax. Or I said, "Um, lighten up. This is not a documentary. It's a comedy. So Rolling Stone quoted that, and it was on the Rolling Stone magazine, I'd like to say, because but Adam Sandler never got the apology he deserves. And I would like to personally go out to him, stuck up for us. A few of us stuck up for him during all this. I would like to reach out. You know, it's seven years later. He's never come back. He's never done anything in New Mexico, and I'm sure he's been. Maybe this podcast will reach him, and he'll be able to hear your feelings on it and the apology. And I'm wondering, what has it been like for you to speak about this community in New Mexico? It sounds like you have a different opinion than some other people might have. Yes, over the last seven years, I've spoke to a lot of people about this. There's still a few diehards that say, oh, he was offending Native culture. But most Natives that, well, I know are urban Indians, I call them. I don't know what else to call them. They don't live on the reservation. They're raised in the city, in the urban environment. They're Native Americans. So they kind of cross over between these two worlds, myself included, and being a shaman in in between these two, oh, I don't know what the the word is. They're so different from life on the res and life in an urban environment and being a Native American or spiritual entity. I'm always looking for the perfect word, but I don't think there is one. This is something I struggle with as a Native American also. And your question is, is how do my friends feel? I don't want to say the exact quote because there are bad words. (laughs) They feel like here we are having, we have the chance, you know, the, the Native Americans are that are alive now are the remnants of what was once a great civilization. You know, 100 million natives died when the Europeans first came to America from the mm-hmm. 1500s on. And we're just the remnants of what was once uh, everyone in America. Now we're just a tiny percentage. We get these opportunities like the Adam Sandler movie to really shine. And there's those that are, I don't want to use the word bigotry. It's selfishness. They don't want to share the culture. It's almost like they're ashamed of it. And these are dangerous words I know I'm saying. What backlash have you personally experienced from this? It's been your experience regarding the backlash that you've received. Oh, from the Adam Sandler movie? Yes. Oh, it's typical. It's it's always the same. You're you're a Hollywood Indian or not a real Indian or you don't live on the res. You know, there's a lot of that bigotry that could be turned around into positivity and unity and strengthening and helping each other rise as a community and as culture. You know, I don't want to stress this and get in, fall into the trap of the 2%. You know, they say, are you 2%? Are you registered with the tribe? This and that. It, it's hurtful, but also 
I don't think it's constructive or positive. This is something I personally struggle with also. That sounds very challenging to be quantified with respect to how much you are from one culture and how little you are from another. It sounds very painful. Quantified, yeah. That's a good word. <laughs> another one of my friends, we, we did a photo shoot. I won't say who or for what magazine. But first they said, well, I just want to take a picture of your face so you don't need wardrobe or anything. And just it's going to be a, kind of a headshot because they're using um, old-time photography. Then it became, uh, well, do you have any wardrobe? Okay, I brought my wardrobe. I even got more wardrobe. We went crazy with the wardrobe. And then we got makeup artists. So the photographer instructed her how to paint my face, how he wanted. And we went along with it. I dressed me up, you know, and his fantasy for this photo shoot then I brought another person in and he said that's very insulting to native culture it's threatening blah 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 so the guy totally ghosted me I don't know what happened to the photo shoot it disappeared but it kind of turned ugly so that was disappointing there's a lot of that goes on although the same person who was just in the movie Dark Winds he said that's going on he's very disappointed because it happened to him because it's a Navajo quote-unquote movie, and they're very, very strict about the language, which is a hard language, Navajo or Diné. What would you like producers to be aware of when navigating a production regarding working with uh, Native Americans uh, that are actors? I mean, to me personally, I say lighten up, don't worry. Don't be so serious about it because nobody's going to be perfect because there's going to be haters out there, and it seems like any word you say, they attack you. And I think producers and directors are afraid to go there, honestly, like Adam Sandler. He just, he, I mean, I didn't hear him say it, but he's never come back. It weighs on my conscience, and I, I want to apologize to him. I think producers and directors are afraid to even go there. Dark Winds are very brave, but, you know, Robert Redford are behind it. They've been around a while, and they're navigating very well, even though they're catching flack, too, from the same subject. You know, you're not being authentic, but who knows what authentic is anymore? Have you ever thought about consulting on different productions in light of this back and forth that's happening in the community? And what would you like people in the community to know? I don't feel I'm qualified to be a consultant. All I can say is lighten up. Don't take it so seriously. It's taking all the fun out of it. But there are those, you know, it's very serious. Like Dark Winds, they have, I'm sure they have linguistic experts in the Diné language, and they're working with that. They're being very respectful about that. It sounds like there's a real challenge to have a balance between being respectful culturally and producing something. Yes, and having the artistic freedom to produce something without being crushed by this. This movie, Mocktobe, that I just got a part in, it's, I think it's in the Middle East. And so I'm going to have to learn some new words, try to be respectful to these words, whatever I say. I have scheduled for a Zoom meeting and find out what's going on with that. You know, it'll be this fall. I'll have time to learn my script. Well, that sounds like an exciting new project for you. I also am aware that you are the peacock or, or wrangler. I've been out to your house, and I've noticed that you have taken wonderful care of these birds. And can you tell me about what that part of your life is like? Oh, yeah, they're magical spiritual, peaceful birds. I've lived here for 20 years. When I first moved here, Michelangelo showed up, and he lived here until he was kidnapped this spring. About 10 of my peacocks were kidnapped. 
the universe brought me more and I have them in a huge aviary where they're safe and they, because they like to wander around, you know, and all the neighbors thought it was cool. They feed the peacocks and they're big, beautiful dragons that we're blessed to share the space with. But I have new peacocks. I was blessed. One mama had four babies. So she hangs around here. She comes up to the door. They love white bread, but it's, it's really sweet. They're spiritual, very intelligent creatures and they, they live 50 years. Wow. So, they can't reproduce until they're about three years old. The males don't become mature until they're seven years old. It is a very zen type of experience to live among peacocks. And musically, I'm aware that you are very creative with respect to writing songs, playing multiple instruments. <laughs> Tell me more. Oh, yes. That music goes back to the church. That was the only joy to me as a child was singing and playing. We had a piano in church, but it was mostly just singing. As a teenager, I learned to play guitar and bass and then play in these bands all over. And I traveled. My bass played from San Diego to New York. I never played in New York City, though. But I spent about 22 years playing with bands all the time, stinking, smoky bars. That was a journey. And I had a lot of fun. I, I, I wish I had started acting back then also. But back to the singing and the church. In 1968, I'll tell you this story real quick. I rehearsed in the church for a dramatic interpret. We wore costumes and we sang. and we A dramatic interpret, we started with vocals. And then um, I just did a solo, a singing solo. So they took me to the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. And I was just a kid. I didn't know what was going on. There was this long runway that went out in the infield. and The whole infield was covered with chairs. There was 127,000 people there. And I walked out on the runway, and there was a microphone. And they said, when you get to the end of the microphone, start singing. And I walked out to the runway, and I didn't have my glasses on. I'm farsighted. So all I saw was this sea of people, as high as I could see, because the Rose Bowl is really steep. You know, it's an old stadium. So it was like a wall of faces. And I walked up to the microphone, went to sing, and I went, ah! My voice cracked. It was terrifying. So I took a big breath, started to sing, and I could hear my voice coming out through the PA speakers around the stadium. It was like the angels were singing for me. Oh, my God. It was the biggest rush I ever had. I finished my song. I think I was hooked ever since on being on stage and reaching people and getting that feedback, that spiritual feeling. People mistake re religion and spirituality because spirituality is when you have this shared spiritual experience with other people and that raises your consciousness as human beings and comes we go into this ethereal zone and then religion comes in and messes it all up that was a spiritual experience to me and something i've always tried to repeat and, and share it again and that's why i love playing music and i still do although my right hand's paralyzed from the cancer i could still play my bass i could strum my guitar i also played flamenco a few years and did shows flamenco shows and I had a little group. I had a male dancer and a female dancer. We would play in these clubs around town, and it was really fun. I loved flamenco. How did being in a boarding school affect who you are today and what you're bringing to the future? Boarding school was painful, and I was just a visitor. I didn't have to sleep there. I got to go home to my own house and sleep in my own bed. Those poor Native children that were there, so sad. It just makes me want to cry now thinking about it. Taken from their families and put in their school and cut their hair. And If you said any native words or Spanish words, they would put soap in your mouth or hit you in the ears with stick. Even saying, um, if in ministry school, this is what they did in ministry school. If you were saying a speech or giving a talk, 
and you said, um, they would smack you in the ear with a stick. So you will never hear me to this day say, um, I'd rather leave dead space in my sentence than say, um, but that's how it affected him. Linguistically, I try to speak correct English. My, although my father could speak Tewa, native language and Spanish and English, we were only allowed to speak English because they wanted us to fit in a quote-unquote modern world. That's how I was affected, and I'm sure there's thousands like me that kind of between these two worlds, there is an empty feeling, craving who we are, what we are. I just tried to remind myself that no one alive today is responsible for the barbaric actions of our ancestors. We are only here in this moment, and we are responsible for what we do with the rest of our lives, and I try to navigate that way. My native friends I know that are urban Indians that live in Mexico, and some go back and forth. I guess we all do to different extents. I respect that also. Can you revisit Breaking Bad and about projects filmed in New Mexico? Breaking Bad, I just got lucky. I went on as an extra one day, and I brought my guitar. The director, he saw me standing there with my guitar. He said, can you play that? And I said, hell yeah. He said, put them in the cantina. They took me out there, and they had this cantina in Matamatos, Mexico. They dressed me up as a Mexican guitar player. I was sitting there in the cantina playing the guitar and singing. The director said, when the twins come up in their black car and get out, stop playing guitar and say, what the fuck? They did it. They shot the scene a few times. So that's my little five seconds on Breaking Bad. Third season, first, first scene. No, Nobody talks in the whole scene. It's all music over everything. You'll see the twins pull up, stop playing my guitar. And you could see me say, what the fuck? But, you know, there's no sound. It's all scary music. Would you tell me a little bit about some of the other shows that you've been working on? Well, I would like to talk about my experience on Longmire with very gracious Robert Baxter. And my experience was he called me at least 10 times. He would call me and say, hey, I've got a really good part I want you to be on. And I would tell him, well, is it a speaking role? He said, no, but it could lead to that. But it's a really good part and you'll get a lot of screen time. I told him, no. You know, at that time, this was about eight years ago, nine years ago, it seemed like Longmire would last forever. It was just going on season after season. And my acting coach said, if you if you are on one scene as an extra, then you can't be on the rest of the show, the series. So I told Robert, no, I'm waiting for a speaking role. So I turned down all those parts, and I finally did get a speaking role on Longmire in one episode, and that was it. You know, I kind of regret, like, maybe I should have gone for all those extra parts that could have led to something. That's how it played out. What advice would you give to actors that are just starting out with respect to background versus speaking roles? That's a tough one. It's true that once you've been seen on background, you're locked in. You can't progress to a speaking role, but, you know, the script's already written. And they've chosen their actors, and the cast has decided. So you'll be really lucky to get develop a speaking role off of a background. How would you suggest making the transition from background to speaking? Never give up. Keep taking classes and lessons and trying. It's there. I was very fortunate. You know, there's always background work, and it gives, it's good because it gives you a feeling of what's going on and how to behave on a set and be comfortable in front of the cameras. Did you have an agent that you were working with? The agent I had, but she had told everybody that I quit acting and moved out of the state. That must have made things difficult for you. I wasn't aware of it. 
for three years I was blackballed by her, but I still got parts, including Longmar. How much farther I could have gone if I had been straight with her and she was straight with me and, and we were working towards a common goal. What would you like a young actor to know about having a relationship with an agent or how to get an agent? You have to do all your homework. And actually, I'm back at square one again, making it real and getting listed on IMDb and Actors Access. It's a lot of legwork. I'm trying to get help with that because, honestly, I've never had an agent that represented me I've only one time. And all the roles I've gotten here or there, pure luck, and trying out. What would you say the importance is of getting together a reel and getting on IMDb, any other places? It seems to be very important, but everything I've done, I've done without it, without an agent, without being listed. I, I am on IMDb. Okay. Well, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I want to go back to something we talked about earlier today that was really important. It has to do with what's happening culturally. What experience can you share about being an actor that's been put on hold, so to speak, with respect to making a comeback from spending all this time healing and cancer? Oh, to never give up, keep hope. And it goes for everyone, too, with COVID. You and I did Tsunami right at the beginning of the COVID epidemic, and that was challenging. Yes, and it was definitely challenging to try to produce a film in the very beginning of the pandemic. It was very challenging. It was the first one I was involved in, and it was a brave new world. I congratulate you for that, pulling it off. Well, truth be told, I couldn't have done it without all the actors that were willing to be uh, willows instead of oaks with respect to what needed to be done to have the production come to fruition in a timely fashion. Yes, that was extraordinary times. And here we are past the pandemic and getting back to work. Although, you know, I won't go anywhere without a mask still, being that I'm doing chemo. The world will never be the same, I'm sure. Yeah, it's obviously it's still with us, and so I'm wondering what it's like for actors to be on set in a COVID world. They still require every time you go out, you have to get a COVID test, and I've gotten my fourth booster shot, so I'm pretty good with that. This next movie I'm scheduled for is going to be in the fall. That's several months from now, and maybe something else will come up before then. I have to keep plugging away and working on my reel and my IMDb and Actors Access. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing with me about Longmire and with what we have so far. Nice talking to you, Lynn. Nice talking to you. Thanks, kiddo. Bye-bye.